What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Dance of Life podcast, where we diligently study the Word of God and we share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm your servant in Christ, and my name is Tudor Alexander and the host of the show. And today we're talking about the big questions of predestination and election. If you're just tuning in, we have done quite a lot of content in the last eight episodes, so I highly encourage you to go check that. We've talked about God predestining things, creating and fulfilling prophecy, how that requires predestination. And we've talked about the elect and how election is seen both in the Old Testament and the New Testament throughout the Bible. God's going to choose who he's going to choose and he's going to pass over who he's going to pass over. We've talked about how God is completely sovereign over everything that happens, including evil. And if that doesn't sit well with you, then you know, hopefully we'll clear that up this episode and, and give you some clarity and empowerment to see that evil indeed has a purpose in this life. Uh, because the cross was predestined. So you got to start there and work your way out. But God took credit for everything that happened. God was very transparent about being sovereign throughout Scripture. And the people who wrote the Bible didn't write the Bible from a libertarian Enlightenment-era philosophy where there's this notion of free will where we have you know the ability to choose without influence, which is really only what God has as an ability. We don't have that kind of free will. But... That's the kind of perspective we as Western thinkers look into Scripture when we when we read, you know, things like choices or God speaking as if he wants us to make a choice. We assume that we have the same free will as he does. And that hopefully has been expounded upon in the last couple episodes. And in this episode, we'll talk about it, too. Hopefully I've expanded upon it uh, enough to where you're satisfied and you have plenty of evidence, both in Scripture and outside of the word to see that we don't have the kind of free will that we've been taught in school, that we've been taught by, you know, society and culture. We don't have that kind of free will. We have a will, but it's definitely not this libertarian, Luciferian, really, philosophy of, of being your own, you know, God, in a sense. I mean, you you to be able to choose free of influence and to make the choices that you want, that's only God can do that. That's why the lie of the Garden of Eden has in part to do with this whole notion of free will that you can choose. So we'll be exploring a little bit more of that in this episode, but just doing a quick review, you know, we've talked about God taking credit for both the good and the bad that happens. He ordains things to happen and he participates, right? He's on the transcendent view of, of history and he's also a participant in history as that's obvious through Christ's life. Now he shows mercy through the elect, those he's predestined to save. And this is really important. He shows justice through those who he hasn't predestined to save. He wouldn't be able to show justice through the elect because he has to punish the wicked and destroy them to be just. He can't destroy the elect. So he needs both an elect people and a reprobate people. That's why it's not this free-for-all where everybody's just choosing, you know, willy-nilly to come to Christ and not that you could even make that choice of yourself. But... There's a purpose for the elect and there's a purpose for the reprobate. I mean, throughout history, God has let Satan and evil spirits test people, harm people in many ways and, and for various reasons, right? To, to bring them back to himself, to reveal his glory, to reveal his mercy, to reveal our utter dependence on God, right? So suffering is a way for us to, to realize and to be humbled, really. This whole world of, of free will and us being the, the masters of our domain, which is so prevalent in the West, especially, and, and really all over the world. It's 
it's an illusion that leads you to a lot of pride, a lot of assumptions about reality that aren't true. They're very convincing, but they're not true. And so we, you know, we even looked at the incarnation of Christ. We looked at his life throughout scripture. Obviously the cross was predestined. That's non-negotiable. The fact that Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. All of that stuff was predestined. But we looked at other things in Christ's life too that prove that every other thing in his life was predestined. Of course, not that you could have something predestined and then the other things are not predestined. It doesn't work that way. Everything is predestined or it's not. And Christ's life certainly has a lot of testimonies and examples in Scripture, in the Gospels, where it's obvious that he lived his life a predestined life. Now, he lived moment by moment. He had genuine emotions. He participated in that life as a human being, but he was also God, and he he was omniscient. We're not omniscient, so we just have just the storyline view. Okay, and so the point is, if we're being conformed to the image of Christ, and we're made in the image of God, the whole point, remember the whole thing about images in the ancient world, we talked about this last episode, I believe, but images to them were, were more than just statues. Spirits would come into them and inhabit these images. And so that's the understanding that we should bring to Genesis when Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the, the Torah, the first five books of the Torah. He, When he said image, that's the understanding when we were made in the image of God, we were made for God to indwell us through the Holy Spirit. That was the plan all along. But there had to be a legal precedent and a, and a reasoning. God is a God of reason. He is He's perfectly reasonable. He's the creator of the law, right, and justice. He Everything he does, there has to be like a valid explanation that he can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's right. And that's the whole point of the, the Garden of Eden. We were made in the image of God for God to indwell us, but the Garden of Eden proved that we, that needed to be the way it, it would be. You see what I'm saying? So human nature comes with this self-awareness. That self-awareness in and of itself, if God is not steering it through his spirit, leads to sin and disobedience and, and everything else and rebellion because it mistakes itself as God. That was the whole lie from the Garden of Eden, and it's tied to this notion of free will, that you're a free and autonomous being. You're not. You're a contingent being that depends completely on God for life, and if you're elect, he's predestined an entire life for you to experience and, and to experience him and reveal his glory. And it's really this dance. That's the dance of life. It's this participation in that plan. We're encouraged to participate, but... The plan itself is predestined. You can have both of those realities. And so ultimately, you know, if we look at the Garden of Eden, that reality wasn't there yet. It wasn't fulfilled. The, the Adam and Eve didn't have the spirit in them. Now, that's very important because that was a controlled experiment. It was, you know, the best experiment you could possibly have to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that even with perfect circumstances, that human nature had to be driven by God, otherwise it would fall. And that's exactly what happened. But God intended that to prove the necessity for him to indwell us through the Holy Spirit. But to get the Holy Spirit, we needed the cross so that our sins could be atoned for. He's not just going to indwell us without us being righteous. Do you see how that works? So everything is tied together. And if we're being conformed to the image of Christ and we were made as vessels to be inhabited, 
from the very beginning, there's no room for libertarian free will. Never mind all the things we talked about in a couple episodes previously, um, where, you know, you have things like hormones, your, you know, your neurotransmitters, your gut health, your trauma, your upbringing, your friends, what you ate that day, your mood. I mean, there's so many things that come into play. Your subconscious that's planning and deciding things, you know, several seconds before you actually decide them consciously. So all these things together, you know, this notion of this free autonomous being that like a free, like free of what? You can't be free in a world that is a physical world because everything is conditional. Everything you do is completely a reaction to the circumstances you're in. We like to think that, you know, we have these free choices, but it's not the case. It really isn't the more you study these things. So in either case, if we're being conformed to the image of Christ, then and Christ lived a predestined life, then there's no room for libertarian free will. So today we're going to talk about election and predestination. I've come up with some tough questions or the big questions in quotation marks of that I've seen that I've asked myself, you know, I've asked God, obviously, but I myself have asked. And these are how I answer these questions. And my goal with this episode is to get, to kind of wrap everything up because the next episode we're going to finish this series and we're going to talk about uh, challenge verses, basically verses that seem to contradict all the things we've been talking about in the last eight episodes. But today I wanted to kind of wrap it all up with these frequently asked questions and Hopefully, you know, if you've run to some of these questions yourself, they can give you some clarity to give you some encouragement, give you some strength. You know, some of these we don't have all the answers to ultimately because, you know, we're not God. We don't have omniscience, but we do have the Bible. We have the word of God. We know God's character, right? We, we know that for sure. We know his motives in, in some sense. We, we know what drives him, which is love and trust and justice and holiness. We know these things. And so, where there is a gray area or an uncertain thing, we can trust that he'll do the best thing possible. So these are no in no particular order, but first and foremost, um, why is election necessary? And by the way, if you're curious, just a short little plug, I do explain a lot of these questions with Bible references in my new book, The Way Home, How to Build a Habit of Prayer. Uh, find strength in suffering and reconnect to Jesus Christ. It's available on Amazon. Go check it out if that's a resource for you. But first and foremost, why is election necessary? Well, election is necessary. Election being God chose people before time began to save, and some people He didn't choose. Obviously, most people He didn't choose. Why is election necessary? The reason election and predestination are necessary is because you can't have salvation by grace alone without predestination and election. Election is predestination. How does that work? Well, think about it this way. If it was up to free will, if if it was up for us to choose to make that first step towards God, what does that mean? What implications does that bring? First and foremost, there's a contradiction in the Trinity. If Christ died for everybody, that contradicts what the Bible says, that the Father chose a certain amount of people to give to Christ that the Spirit sealed a certain amount of people, right? That the Father is drawing those people, right? So if there's the elect that God the Father chose to give to Christ for a kingdom and a people, but then Christ kind of disobeyed that and said, you know, it's okay, I'm going to die for everybody, 
even those people that I know and you know, Father, that they hate you and they hate me and they're never, they're not repentant. They're just, they're going to die in their sins. I'm going to die for those people too. Does that make any sense? It doesn't make any sense. The other thing is it limits God because ultimately, again, something like Bible prophecy, that disproves free will. Why? Because if you have Bible prophecy, that means you have predestination. You can't have predestination. I'm sorry, you can't have Bible prophecy and this notion of libertarian free will. Imagine what that would be like. That would be like God waiting around for the perfect circumstances. Again, he, in this version, God isn't in con- complete control. This is the open theist view of God. This is why you have to really analyze and think through very carefully these things, because people who vouch for Arminianism, which is the free will perspective of salvation, that you can choose your way into it, and obviously the the reverse is true, that you can choose your way out of it. You can lose your salvation, which is why I created this whole series in the first place, because I think that's nonsense. I think it spreads fear, and I, it's not the gospel. But either way, people who subscribe to that view don't realize that the only consistent God with that view is an open theist God. It's a God that's just million-armed octopus that's just kind of, you know, going along with history and he doesn't know the future. He's not completely sovereign. He can't know the future according to open theists. Well, then how can he have prophecy fulfilled? The Bible's a prophetic book. Countless prophecies. How how would Christ have come along just and, and fulfilled all those prophecies? If unless all those things were predetermined and, and it was set in this perfect motion that would reveal God's glory. But from the open theist view, God doesn't know the future, so there wouldn't be any prophecy. So you see, it limits God to believe in free will, in this libertarian free will. Because again, when you acknowledge predestination, you acknowledge not that we don't have a will. Of course, we have some kind of will. We have desires, we have thoughts, we have a name, we have individuality. That's clear. But we don't have the same kind of will as God. And when you try to draw a line, which is what free willers try to do, say, okay, this is God's sovereignty on this side and this is my sovereignty on this side. Inevitably, you're going to put God in a box. It's inevitable. You cannot draw a line between the two and expect to have a a sovereign, completely omniscient, all-powerful God in your mind. And so that's why it's a mystery. That's the dance of life. Where, Where is the line? Maybe there is no line. But ultimately, there there is a mystery, just like the mystery of the incarnation. How is Jesus fully human and fully God? It's a mystery, right? And that's what makes it beautiful. And same with us, in a, in a sense. Not that we're God, but how are we, you know, having this experience as individual human beings, how are we experiencing choices and participating in life? And it feels like it's a surprise, and it certainly is, because we don't know the future. And yet everything is predetermined. And you look back, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. you see, wow, God's plan is such a, a genius plan. So, you know, when you believe in free will, you limit God, you, you contradict the Trinity, you contradict the scriptures, and you rob glory from God because if it's up to you to choose, okay, if it's up to you to choose to make that first step, think about how many people didn't make that step in history, billions of people. Now, does that give God the glory or you? The answer is that it gives you the glory. No matter how you want to splice it or dice it, it gives the person who 
was part of that outcome, the glory. God gets some of the glory, sure, but we get the glory too, at least, because you made a choice that so many people didn't make. All, all of your own, you know, free will. What an amazing act of power you demonstrated over your sinful nature. You see how that works? And so there's this whole debate that faith isn't a work. Faith is a work. This is a waste of time between people arguing about predestination or free will. It's not whether faith is a work or not. Who cares? I think it's a work, but it doesn't matter that it's a work or not. Even if it wasn't a work, you're sharing responsibility for the outcome with God in that situation. For you having faith, you're basically saying it's God plus me that equals salvation. As long as it's God plus me that equals salvation, God is sharing, having to share his glory with you. And that's, God doesn't share his glory with anybody. Not, not to mention that we can't even make that choice in and of ourselves, but that's besides the point. It's, it's robbing glory from God. At the very worst is you can see all these denominations that have something in common. And, and I want you to think about this really critically. Look at the gospel very plainly. It, it teaches predestination. Now look at Catholicism, Mormonism, um, Jehovah's Witnesses. Look at the pagan religions. Look at Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Islam. And yeah, Judaism is not Hebrewism, by the way. Judaism is a response to Christianity. Christianity is the continuation of Hebrewism. All these religions, what do they have in common? What they have in common, I'll tell you what they have in common. It's our, it's this, I was going to say Armenianism, but they don't really, you know, it's not labeled that way, but it's free will. It's this idea that you have to work to do something to reconcile your relationship with God. It's up to you. You got to choose because if you can choose freely, then guess what? The responsibility is on you. You got to choose the good and it's up to you to ascend, to transform, to sacrifice, to, you know, jump through the hoops of works. So all the workspace religions, which are false, even the Christian versions, they all have the same thing in common. They rely on this notion of free will. Why is that? Because that's the lie from the Garden of Eden. You can be like God. It's up to you to choose between what's good and evil. You have the power to choose. And of course, if you have the power, you also have the responsibility. And you live in this anxiety and this constant slavery to work, 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 work. Look at Catholicism. It's a, it's a slave pyramid. It's Egypt all over again. All these other religions, it's the same works-based pyramid of you got to work, otherwise you're not going to make it. Well, the gospel is good news because you're not doing the work. It's God that's doing the work for you and you're saved. Now, are you encouraged to participate? Absolutely. And we'll look at plenty of verses like that. But, being encouraged to participate doesn't mean that you can lose your salvation. This is where the sleight of hand happens and, and really the sleight of ignorance happens because a lot of people who read verses like Philippians 2, 12, where, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that doesn't mean like you better work your salvation or you're going to lose it. That's not what it means. No, not at all. If you read the surrounding verses, it's you've been given a gift so go and appreciate it. Come on, embrace life by the horns. You're alive. God has given you life. It's an encouragement. It's not a it's not something to hang over people's head with fear that they if they don't work and they don't bear fruit, then you know you're gonna lose your salvation. 
That's not the gospel. Remember, the Holy Spirit convicts us of righteousness. It convicts He convicts believers of righteousness. What does that mean? That means we're convicted and reminded that we're righteous. Not that we're condemned. That's the devil's voice. So if you believe earnestly that we can lose our salvation, you're teaching other people that we can lose our salvation, that's not the Holy Spirit whispering that to you. And, and it's, it's twisting your view of Scripture. So you see, you need predestination and election to, to satisfy this idea of being saved by grace alone. Anything other than grace, and it becomes immediately a works-based religion. Just like all the other examples. The difference between the gospel and every other thing I listed is that the gospel is about predestination. It is a true account of God and God's work in the world, a predestined affair. Whereas those other religions, they couldn't, you see, Satan has tried to counterfeit the gospel and make counterfeit religions and all kinds of things, but he can't counterfeit predestination, right? Because predestination is inextricable from God. God is, who's predestining it? Well, you know, they try, you know, he tried with karma and fate, in some sense, in uh, some of these Eastern religions. But predestination, if you were to make a, a gospel or a religion where you were saved by you know, some sort of predestination, well, who's doing the predestining? God? God's doing the predestining? Well, we don't want that because then now people feel secure in their salvation and they learn to trust God even when they're feeling lost. So you see, it can't be counterfeited. That's why Satan had to seduce people with this idea of free will that, you know, no, it's, it's not about predestination. You're not secure. You have to work. You have to, it's up to you. You got to free, you know, free yourself. That's all Luciferian talk, man. And that's why the gospel is different from every other religion and every other spiritual path. You name a religion, you name a path, and I guarantee you it's works-based because of this free will libertarian free will mentality, which is from the Enlightenment era. It's from, really, it's from the Garden of Eden. But it's in our Western life, it's from the Enlightenments, from all those thinkers who were Luciferians. They were Luciferians. And so election is necessary for being saved by grace. It's necessary to portray God accurately as sovereign. It's necessary for the liberty and the freedom that we get through the gospel. You think the martyrs of the first century church that they believed in free will? No, they didn't. They knew that God was in control and they were able to endure horrible things because of that. That was their eternal security in the face of persecution. And and that's the good news because if you could lose your salvation, you would, and the gospel would have no power. Imagine going to somebody in, in jail and trying to tell them about Jesus, and then, but then, oh, big asterisk, by the way, you could lose your salvation between now and the time you die. <laughs> it's like, oh, great. Better, you know, I wish you wouldn't have told me because now I feel even more anxious. You see what I'm saying? I mean, there's no, there's no power in that kind of a gospel because it's not the gospel that you can lose your salvation. And last but not least, predestination is critical for explaining the purpose of evil. You know, the problem of evil is one of the biggest problems in, in we have in our lives, right? It's the central <laughs> thorn in our side. But 
If you don't have predestination, again, you have to think about this very, very clearly. If you reject the idea that God predestined evil, then what are you left with? I'll tell you what you're left with. You're left with evil that happens outside of God's intent or control. It doesn't matter that God can use it for the good. Yeah, we all know that. But if evil happens outside of God's watch, and he didn't intend for that to happen, or he didn't control it, what does that say about God? And that's the open theist God. That's the, that's the God that doesn't know the future. And so, oops, oh, somebody got killed. Oh, let me use it for the good. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of the Bible. God, everything that happens has God's signature on it. Whether it's good or bad, he allows things to happen. He ordains things to happen. And he he has purposed for them to have a very important purpose. Even though we, most of the time, don't understand those things. It's beyond our minds. But nonetheless, again, remember, we know his character. We know his value system. We know what he wants. We know that from the Bible. And so in those situations where we're facing evil, that's a time to really get deeper in prayer and to remember God's character, that he cannot lie, he doesn't change, and he's perfectly moral and just. And he's the creator and the authority of, of law and justice. So we're, we're nobody to, to say anything to him. So election and predestination go hand in hand, but they're both necessary They're necessary for this whole gospel thing to work. You can't have a gospel that's like everything else, where it's this kind of inspiring message, but, you know, it's still up to you. You got to choose. You got to go for it. That's BS. That's nonsense. That's not the gospel. The people who wrote the Bible did not believe in this libertarian, save-yourself type of free will. They believed man had a will and desires, but it was limited. We're just pots compared to the potter. Imagine that. A pot is nothing. It's an inanimate object. The potter is alive. He's a human being. So by comparison, how how much different is God from us? Beyond all understanding. So there's no way we can grasp the level of, of genius and design that's gone into reality. But nonetheless, it's predestined. And thank God that it appears as a surprise. Thank God for that that we can enjoy the present moment and that it does unfold as a surprise, that we don't know what's going to happen, that we have the illusion of, of the sense of free will, but at the same time we're being carried along by the Spirit. That's a great mystery, and, it, and it's a good thing that it's a mystery because if it wasn't a mystery, that would not be so good. So I think I have about 12 or 13 big questions here that I want to go over with you and, again, answer them the way I answer them. But... Hopefully, they'll give you some encouragement. The first one is, is God immoral for choosing some and not choosing others? Now, this is, again, one of those things where we just don't understand what unconditional election means. When when we say unconditional election, so election being God chose people to save and he chose others not to save, that choice was made unconditionally, meaning without condition. The physical world that we live in is conditional. There is no choice that you can ever make or that you have ever made that has been made from nothing. God is beyond time and space and therefore can make a choice from nothing. We can't wrap our minds around how that works because 
any person that's ever made a choice, including yourself, you can always tie it to some reasoning. And therefore, you can add culpability, right? Oh, you made this choice because of that. For God to be a just judge, he cannot have chosen conditionally. God is the perfect judge. He's the the example of justice. He is justice. Now think about that for a second. If he is justice and if he is truth, and we go with the free will route that he's responding. So I make, I, I have faith and oh my gosh, I have all this faith and I counteract all my sinful nature. And then he responds to me and, you know, and he regenerates my heart. If that's the sequence of events, then God is the most biased person in history that he's only responding to people who have faith. That's not to his glory at all. It's to his glory that he has unconditionally chose People who were dead anyway. God is a God of life. He is the God of resurrection. He is, he is, he is life. Life in, him, in and of himself. What he touches comes alive. So it is to his glory to choose the dead and bring it back to life. Not respond to something that has life in and of itself. Do you see how much less of a view of God that is? And again, people don't think this thing out. They don't think this thing out, but it's the truth. God does not look down the corridor of time and say, ah, you know what? Tudor's going to respond to me with faith, so I'm going to shower him with blessings. That would that would make him the most you know, biased God in his... That's no different than the pagan gods, where people were working in some way to do something so they would obtain favor. It is to God's glory that we've been favored without deserving it, with there's nothing about you or me that deserves being chosen to be saved. That's what makes, that's what gives glory to God. There's nothing that was a condition for him choosing us. Now, in the same way, there is no condition for him choosing people not to save. See how that works? It's unconditional both ways. So he's completely just. He's completely fair. It could have been you and it could have been me. That's why we got to be grateful. The people who weren't chosen were and are horrible people. The reprobate are horrible people. They could care less about God. They don't care about his laws. They have seared consciences, hardened hearts. They don't care about any of that stuff. So there's nothing to pity. You know, instead, be grateful that it wasn't you because you wouldn't have even known if it was you. Those people aren't even aware of their need to be saved. That's how bad it is because they don't have the spirit. Now, the follow-up question to this is, why did God not save everybody? Well, the answer is simple. If he saved everybody, starting with Cain, because Cain was the first, uh, you know, reprobate, if, if Cain was saved then you would have never had the cross. There would have never been a legal precedent to give us the Holy Spirit. There would have never been a show of God's love and mercy and justice. We would have no context for our relationship with God. There would be no reason for anything. So evil was necessary for the cross so that there would be a legal precedent for us to be inhabited by the Holy Spirit. In order for the cross, you needed prophecy and evil and all these things that led up to it. The whole Bible 
the old, old, old Testament, let's put it this way, is a typology. It's a, it's a hall of shadows and types that leads up to the cross. It's like, you know, echoes and echoes and echoes, and then suddenly you, you hear the real sound or see the full picture in the New Testament with Christ. And so all of that was necessary. If God had saved everybody, then there would be no precedent for anything. There would be no way to understand who God is and appreciate our gift. There would be no precedent for the Holy Spirit to be in us as we are created in the image of God. So evil was necessary. And of course, that's why God didn't save everybody. In fact, most people weren't saved. So remember that unconditional election means no bias. Now, we can't understand that, but it makes God just. That's that's why it's unconditional. God is the only one capable of making unconditional choices. And again, if 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 you have evil, then you then you are able to have other things as well. At least in this temporary short period of time, and thank goodness, it'll it'll be gone forever at one point. But for this too, short period of time, it was necessary. How could we learn trust if we haven't been betrayed? How can we learn about love if we haven't been hated? What about faith and doubt? All these things work together. They're sort of contrasts of each other, right? You don't have an appreciation of what it means to persevere unless you've been challenged. This recording right now that I'm doing is the third time I'm recording this. And the last two times were two hours each. My voice is killing me. But something's been sabotaging my audio, my video. It's like every time I feel I nail a recording, it's it, it got deleted or some something stupid happened. And so it's like it's really frustrating, especially when you have good things that you want to say and then your voice is strained. But I pray to God that he'll deliver me because he always has. And glory to God, he is right now. My voice doesn't hurt that much. So ultimately that taught me to persevere. And I've had many such similar circumstances, and so have you. But you wouldn't have had this treasure of perseverance if you weren't challenged. This is the world we live in where we need these opposites to sort of craft us. And that's why God didn't save everybody. He's not immoral. In fact, he's incredibly just and merciful for doing what he did. So you have to keep this in mind. And again, you have to remember God's character is perfect. He doesn't change. He's honest. He can't tell a lie. He's perfectly moral. He's the creator. You have to focus on his character and what we know. And that answers all of these questions, even the ones that are like, ah, man, I don't know what the exact answer is. And sure, we we probably won't know maybe until the other side of heaven, but either way, you do know God's character. And that gives you certainty. Now, the second question is, did God choose some people for help? And this is, again, one of those things where it's a lot of these question God's character. And a lot of these also are very misinterpreted or misunderstood, I should say, a better word. They're misunderstood. And for that reason, because we don't like the conclusion, then we reject predestination. And this is the problem. It's just the problem is bad theology. Bad theology, if, if you refuse to examine it and you just kind of go to even worse theology, then you're going to end up creating philosophy to try to justify your beliefs. And this is what happens with Arminianism. So first and foremost, the Bible does not teach eternal torment in hell. Now that may be news to you, and I plan on doing a study on the afterlife. It was certainly news to me when I learned it. 
I realized that I've been lied to my whole life with everything, culture, the my faith that I grew up in. You know, hell as an eternal tor- place of torment doesn't exist. It's a future time of judgment in the lake of fire. The wicked were created. Obviously, there's a purpose for that. We discussed that. And they will be judged and everything is going to be wiped clean at the final judgment. That's when everything will be, you know, accounted for. Because some of the wicked people did not get judged. I mean, like, for example, Sodom and Gomorrah, those people got judged. But, you know, some of the wicked people, especially today, look at all the elites running around just, you know, bringing about the end of the world. They're not, you know, they're living in their cushy lives. So they will they will come to account, especially all the people who mock Christ and, you know, to do all those bad things. But ultimately, that is the time when hell will happen, which is the future situation in the final judgment. And again, remember that God is, okay, God is the source of all life, right? This is very important to understand. The universe is sustained by the word of his power. That's what Hebrews says. He sustains every living thing. Now, ask yourself this. If the only way for eternal life is through Christ, do you think that he is also sustaining people he hates and just created just for them to be destroyed? Do you think he's sustaining those people forever, for eternity, to torture them? like regenerating their bodies while they're getting sliced or some crazy thing. Like that's not happening. A God, the God of the Bible would never do that. First and foremost, he's not going to waste his energy on that. The pattern of God's justice is death. That's it. You're dead. You're gone. Like not a problem anymore. He's not going to hang on to the memory of people and and keep them alive and you know, somehow, like, how is that even going to work? You ever thought about it? If you're living in eternity and there's somewhere else that people are getting tortured, like, don't you think that that would kind of mess up your eternity experience? I think it would. But either way, you know, there's a whole study on this. And look, at the end of the day, eternal life, the word eternity and eternal is applied to both life and death. But it means two different things based on the context. And I have a little math problem. Now, if you're listening to this as a podcast, try to visualize this, but it's pretty simple. Like it goes like this. One times infinity equals infinity. Everybody can agree with that. Zero times infinity equals zero. This is how math works. Very simple. But now if we add like meaning to those words. One life, something that exists, one person. You give them eternity, eternal. What do you get? You get eternal life. But now on the second sentence or phrase, zero is death. What happens when you die? Nothing. You're gone. The dead know nothing. So death is zero times eternal. You get eternal death. What's eternal death? It's forever. It's it's a eternal consequence, as in, that's it. And so ultimately, you know, that, that that's the thing that you have to remember that these things have been twisted for a very important reason. God is just for destroying the wicked in hell in a future event, but he, he's not hanging on to the memory of them and keeping them alive while he's also keeping us alive who have had faith 
through Jesus Christ, because then he, he, first off, he wouldn't be consistent with his pattern of judgment. And then he wouldn't be consistent in saying that the only way to live is through him. Well, those people rejected him. How come they're alive? That doesn't make any sense. God doesn't need rescuing with philosophy. This is what happens is people say, oh, you see, eternal torment, God would never predestine people to eternal torment. So, so therefore, predestination is wrong. Or how about we examine your theology for a minute and we say that maybe eternal torment is wrong because it's not unjust for God to predestine the wicked for his purposes and then to make them account at the end of time and destroy them in hell, in the lake of fire, and then boom, they're gone. That's not unjust. That's completely just. That's what we all deserve if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit. Praise God. But that's not unjust at all. So you see how, how the deception weaves its way, is that ultimately you, you accept the bad theology, which is eternal torment, and so you, it pushes you in a different direction, so you have to invent this philosophical way that you can reconcile that, and, and in the process you create God to be differently than he exists in the Bible. So you're creating a, a different God in your mind, which is the open theist God. You know, so God is judge and creator. You don't, we're not in a position to tell him what to do or how to do things. And he's completely just. If people are chosen unconditionally, then the people who went to hell or who will go, I should say, their punishment is just. There was no condition that God chose. Oh, he's like, oh man, this one's really wicked. I'm going to choose him to punish. It doesn't work that way. Just like how it is with salvation, that would make God the most biased person in history which in fact is contrary to the Bible because God delights in taking people who are wicked or, you know, like just lost in sin and then flipping the script and transforming their heart. Look at Peter, uh, Paul. Paul was, you know, a murderer, a Pharisee, fierce persecutor of Christians, and he ended up being the best evangelist. This is the pattern of God's actions throughout Scripture. He inverts things. Now, he inverts them for the good, because Satan inverted everything in this world to evil. So he delights in, in showing his glory by inverting it back to the way it was supposed to be. And that's how evil serves a purpose. The devil serves his purpose. Everything is about showing God, the glory of God. You see, it all falls in place, man. Now, the other thing is the immortal soul was not something that the Jews believed, the Hebrews believed in. The Hebrews believed in a body-soul union. And so this whole idea of immortal soul, this is from the Greeks. This is from other pagan cultures. And now here's an important thing. Do you, if you know your history, the, the Greeks and all these people and the Egyptians who believed in an immortal soul, they were ruled by who? Fallen angels, the devil and his fallen angels who were principalities and, and deities in these religions. Now, why do you think it was so important for them to, to believe in an immortal soul, that they could be immortal too? It's a half-truth. Yes, there's a spirit world. That's true. But the lie is that we can participate in it. That's not true. We're, we don't have immortal souls. There's no immortality outside of Christ. But if you could be convinced that there is, then that opens the door for all kinds of nonsense. Look at all the stuff like out-of-body experiences and channeling and you know, past lives and reincarnation. There's just so much 
there's so much deception to pull people away from the truth, which is Christ, that we are completely contingent beings and we depend on God for life. That's the truth. But the devil has to pull you away from that with all kinds of things, this, this seductive idea of an immortal soul. What's the Garden of Eden lie? No, you will not die. Remember that? You're not going to die. Don't worry. You can be like God, who is immortal. It's all the same stuff. So to answer the question in a roundabout way, did, did God choose some people for hell? Yes, he did. But not in the sense that you've been taught. Not in the sense that he chose people to be, you know, tormented forever and ever and ever. No, that's not the God of the Bible. He chose the wicked to be the wicked of the story for the, for the purposes that he's used them. And he will punish and destroy them at the end to make everything right. And that's completely just. He's a just God. Everywhere you look, when you look from the lens of predestination and election, everything wraps up very neatly. But the thing you got to give up is this sense of pride about free will and you, you know, being your own God type of thing. That we are not sovereign beings. And it's a, that's why it's, the gospel is so unique. It's the most humbling thing in the world and people hate it. Because they don't have any, they don't get any credit. And rightly so. You don't deserve any credit. It's God that's doing the work. So he's completely just, and he did predestine people to hell, but not in the way that we've been taught. Now, question number three is, if God predestined things, why is there evil in the world? Which again, this is kind of piggybacking on all these other things we've been talking about. But look, when you're cooking something like potatoes, I like potatoes, and I'm sure you like them too, but you, what do you do? You, you cook something, you peel the potatoes and you throw away the skins unless you're making baked potatoes. But there's always a part that you throw away and a part that you keep. There's always a part of the process that you enjoy and there's a part of the process that you don't enjoy, but you still got to do it. Why is it any different for God? So the, the question is not why did God predestine evil? Because that sort of jabs at God's character as if like, who is God that he would do such a thing? It's why is evil necessary? That's going to lead you to the truth, which is very humbling. And the truth is that evil is necessary for you and I to live. The, the brutality and the evil of the cross was the price that God paid for you and I to live. Otherwise, he would have to judge us and he could be completely justified in destroying us. So that's why evil was necessary. All that evil in the world is so you and I could live with him. That's a big price to pay, and that's very humbling. But you see, that only works from predestination. Because again, if if you don't believe in predestination, then what does that leave? That means that the evil that happened in the world is, well, it's kind of just happening. God's using it for the good, but oh, gosh darn it, there's another evil thing that happened that went under the radar. It's not the God of the Bible. Now, a follow-up question to that is, does God predestine sin? <laughs> so that's that's an even more, you know, controversial one. And it's just like, it, it. I feel like the people who ask these questions, who I've seen in various talks, they, they try to find these ways of wording these questions to make you feel insecure about your beliefs and, and to somehow refute predestination. So first off, again, everything starts with the cross. Was the cross predestined? Yes, it was. 
all the evil of the cross, which God used for an amazing good, was predestined. So if that was predestined, ask yourself this, was the people nailing him to the cross, were they sinning? Yeah, they were sinning. They were killing an innocent man. Were the Pharisees who wanted his blood like vipers, were they sinning? Absolutely they were sinning. So yeah, God predestined sin. God predestined sin. Now, he predestined it for a very important purpose. If you don't see the purpose in that, that's something between you and God. That's something you need to pray on and read the word because it's very clear. God hardens the people he hardens. He allows Satan to test people. He allows Satan to tempt and incite people. He participates. He's even transparent about deceiving certain prophets that were trying to prophesy in his name so that he deceived them on purpose so that people would know that they weren't his prophets. So he's, you know, he's destroyed an army of 185,000, I think Assyrians, struck them down. So he participates and he ordains, right? But that doesn't make him evil. There's a difference between economy and ontology that people need to draw a line between, a very clear line. Economy is what you do. Ontology is your being. You know, what's your essence, right? Well, the devil, the devil's ontology is evil. He is evil. He's the father of lies. All the things that he can do are only evil. That's why he, as genius as the devil is, he's predictable. God is not predictable in a good way. God is a sovereign, right? He has a, he's perfectly moral. He cannot lie. He cannot, he can't do any wrong, but he's just. So he participates in history, right? Economy. He does things in history. He ordains. But his ontology is perfect. So just because he ordains evil, he ordained sin, he ordained, you know, various things to happen. He lets Satan do various things. That has no bearing on his ontology. This is where the mix-up comes in. You can ordain, like a judge, for example, can sentence somebody to death and we don't call that judge immoral in our system of courts and law. We don't call the executioner immoral. He's doing his job. He's exempt from the law in, in that particular circumstance. How much more, if that's the case for just regular people, how much more is that for God, who is the creator of everything, the transcendent creator? We have no right to speak on that. So remember, God is not forcing people to sin in the same way he uses irresistible grace to convert sinners into born-again Christians. Okay, he ordained evil for the reprobate because there's a purpose behind that, as we've talked and said numerous times. And for the elect, evil has a purpose in shaping us to be the people conformed to the image of Christ, the people that the Father chose to give to his Son. It all fits together. And again, it all comes from the cross. If the evil at the cross was predestined, well, everything else is predestined. You can't get around that. Now, some will say that God can't ordain evil without being evil. But again, you have the transcendent view and you have the storyline view. God is in both. God can ordain the rain, but he's not sitting there with a, a pail dumping out water, right? So he's not participating in the rain. He does participate in history, and he's very transparent about that. But he's not tempting people 
like the devil tempts them actively. He allows people to get tempted for his purposes and for their strengthening. But again, everything falls into his purposes because he's in the transcendent view. Now, the thing you have to remember is he this short period of time where evil is in the world, and it won't be forever afterwards, he doesn't take any pleasure in this period of time. Just like, you know, like when I'm peeling potatoes, I don't like peeling potatoes, but I have to do it. Got to get rid of the, the peel if I want my meal, which I've predestined to enjoy. Psalms 7, verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. God feels indignation every day. He feels this constant conflict of having to restrain himself because of all the evil people that he had to bring into life so that you and I could exist for Christ. See how that works? He's restraining himself because he knows everything. He sees everything. He sees all the wickedness. And he's a just God and he has to restrain himself. He feels indignation every single day. Romans 9 verse 22 through 24 What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So, God endures the temporary evil of the world until his plan is fulfilled. He's enduring it. He's not having any joy in this time where the evil in the world that he had to ordain is, is you know, flourishing. But it has to happen in order for the greater glory of God to be revealed. That's the whole point. And God takes no pleasure in the evil, but he does take pleasure in the glory. Just like Hebrews 12 too, the joy that was set, was set before him. Do you think it was a joy for Christ to go on the cross? No, but he had a great joy in obeying the Father and getting a people to himself, getting a kingdom. That's a great joy. It was for the glory of the Father. And that, that joy is what motivated him and pushed him through. It was a great joy. And in the same way, God doesn't enjoy the suffering and all the evil that's happening right now. He's going to redeem everything, but the joy is the future. It's the future kingdom. You know, sin pleases us. Sin pleases us. It doesn't, ordaining evil doesn't please God. But the purpose of the evil to glorify the Son and and Son glorifying the Father for the greater glory of God, that pleases God. It's like when you discipline a child or a dog. When you get a dog, a puppy dog, you know you know that the puppy dog is going to pee all over the place. It's going to probably chew up your shoes. You know that's going to happen. And you know in your mind, you've already predestined that you have to discipline them. So consider that for a second. You, you've predestined what's going to happen. You know it's going to happen. So ultimately, when you have to discipline that puppy dog, what happens? Well, you're going to do it, but it's not like you enjoy disciplining that puppy dog. But you know you have to do it because that's part of the plan to raise the dog. Okay, and same thing with a child, right? You discipline your children. It's not like you necessarily enjoy it, but you enjoy the outcome, meaning the future of them being well-raised children. 
So God can have regret and emotions and hate. I mean, he's a complex being. He can have these feelings, like where Jesus wept over Jerusalem, where God regretted creating man. You can have that and still have a predestined outcome. I can get a puppy dog in my mind say, I'm going to have to really discipline this dog, especially if they're wiener dogs. They're my favorite dogs. They're super stubborn. I'm going to have to discipline this dog. And I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's a predestined thing. And when the time comes, I can still experience, you know, like a regret or a suffering having to discipline that dog. But it has to be done. So God can have the same thing, even though life is predestined. He can experience emotions about having to carry out his plan. And again, he doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And by the way, that's another proof for not eternal torment. Why will you die? It's not why will you go to hell. Why will you die? It's always about death with God. Life or death? Which one do you want? It's not eternal life or eternal torment. Life or death? Because eternal life, eternal death is the opposite of eternal life. Remember, zero times infinity is zero. Eternal, eternally zero. Nothing is going to be nothing. If you multiply it an infinite amount of times, it's still going to be nothing. So this verse, one thing really that pops out to me is, is this verse teaching about free will? Does God say, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Does that mean that God's like sitting there saying, oh gosh, I really hope you do the right thing. Is that what he's saying? Or in the context of everything else we've studied, is is he saying he takes pleasure in redeeming the wicked? in transforming them, giving them hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. You know, when we read libertarian philosophy, enlightenment, Luciferian philosophy into that scripture, the way to read that is, oh gosh, God is just sitting there on his throne and hoping we'd make the right choice. It's all up to us. That's not what it's saying here. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but in rather redeeming them. It's about God's character. And and his work in the world. He takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, in ordaining evil. So how could he be evil by ordaining evil? He had to ordain it, but he absolutely hates having to ordain it because he's a just and holy being. And he would rather, he takes joy in people repenting, in, in in resurrecting a dead, spiritually dead person back to life. He doesn't take pleasure in destroying the wicked. There's no pleasure there. He's a God of life, ultimately. Lamentations 3, verse 31 through 33. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, there's that one, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. He doesn't do it from the heart. Again, he takes no pleasure in in any of the evil that's happening in the world. So scripture is clear about that. So the question is, how can God ordain evil without being evil? Very simply, he's the creator. He's the creator. He doesn't enjoy, it's very clear, he doesn't enjoy any aspect of this part of history. He's 
but it has a, a very clear purpose for his eventual glory. And even now, it's a way for us to discover his glory through our day-to-day lives when we suffer. Right? So it all serves his glory. That's the reason why he allows it and why he lives in indignation and, and restrains himself every day because of the glory. He's the judge and the executioner. And again, Hebrews 12, 2, there was a joy that was set before him. What was the joy? Was it suffering? No, it was redemption. It was glory. And what a glory that is. It's, you know, without the cross being predestined, how could the cross ever have happened? You ever think about that? If, if we actually had free will and God was waiting around for the right circumstances, it would never happen. You can't have physical world without predestination. Plain and simple. I mean, it's like those Hoberman spheres. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's a, it's a giant ball. It's actually a tiny structure, but then you expand it by pulling on two ends and it just expands the whole ball. Well, everything is related to everything, right? That's predestination. When you create something in the physical world, it's conditional. It works according to certain rules. And what that means is you physical reality cannot exist unless it is predestined. But from our perspective, it doesn't seem that way. And that's the blessing. Thank God that we can live day to day and just have a relationship with the Lord where we're not thinking about the future in this crazy world. Now, some may even go further with this and say, how can you say that my rape or murder or accident, etc., was necessary? And that's a tough question, right? Like, how can you say this horrible thing that happened to me was necessary if you're saying that evil was predestined and it was necessary? Well, evil in general, it's obvious that the Bible teaches that evil was predestined in general. And it has very specific cases too. Job is a great example. The cross is the best example. So the question is, if there's something that happens in our life and we feel conflicted about that, What's really happening is we're having a hard time reconciling our faith in God and his character with what the world is telling us. And that's what faith is. It's the dance between these two things. It's reconciling these two things. It's reconciling who we know God to be with the world. You got assaulted, molested, you know, robbed, whatever, a terminal illness, Horrible things in this world. Certainly there are because this world's cursed. But is that, is there a greater purpose in that? And that's something that is between you and God. And there is. But what specifically that is, that is something that you need to answer with God. Through prayer, through spending quality time, fasting maybe, I don't know. But ultimately you will find an answer through faith. And there are many times when things happen to us, you know, like with with this recording. I mean, it's not a big deal, but to me it's a big deal because my voice, it's just, it's been a real journey having lost my voice for an entire year, you know, especially as a content creator, a podcaster. And to just get sabotaged like that, man, that really, it feels immediately, it's like, what's going on? Why am I being punished? (laughs) We shake our fist at God and, and that's just our stupid human nature, but Ultimately, everything has a purpose. And now, this is the third time I've done this, so I've rehearsed this quite a bit. So I've really, maybe I needed to learn these things, these points. Maybe I needed to really dial in these points. But ultimately, everything is necessary. 
Now, we may not understand why those things are necessary because they're very painful, but that doesn't mean that they aren't. And that is the practice that you need to engage in with prayer. Ultimately, it just comes down to prayer. Our suffering is needed to remind us of our dependency on God. Remember Paul's thorn in his side. And think about how many things you've been saved that you didn't even know about. You know, do you have faith that God's going to use everything for the good? Or are you questioning God's judgment like Job? There have been so many things that God has saved you from that you have no idea. And yet you're questioning something that he's allowed to happen in your life for a very specific purpose, to bring you back to him in a stronger way. So that's my response to that question. And ultimately, again, it's, it's about your time with God. And there will be an answer. Give it time. Who knows how long time? Sometimes, you know, might take a very long time. Might be a whole season of your life. But there are answers always when we go to God and we go with an earnest heart. Number four, what about people who seemed saved, but they left the church? Hmm. Well, I had an atheist friend, actually an acquaintance, who used to be a missionary and a pastor. Now he's parting it up and he's a militant liberal atheist. Very angry at Christians and the question is, was he ever saved? I don't know, and the reason I don't know is because God may still work in his life. We don't know who is elect and who isn't. However, with that said, if he dies in his sins, God forbid, then he wasn't ever saved because you can't lose your salvation. And the reason I say that is the people who deconstruct their faith, in quotation marks, or the people who you know go for something better, like Oprah said in one of her shows a long time ago, upgrade, you know, whatever they want to call it. They're, they're losing faith. Why they do it is usually a couple of reasons that are pretty universal. One of them is that they get sick of the people around them. They see hypocrisy or something about the people in their community gives them a distasteful flavor for the church. Two, they don't understand the character of God, so they wrestle with the problem of evil like all the questions we've been talking about. Um, and three, ultimately they get seduced by the world. So some combination of these three, or maybe all just one of them, all two of them, who knows. The reality is that some flavor of those challenges are what draw people away from the faith. And why do I say that? Because those people, their faith was never based on God. Their faith was never based on having a genuine relationship with God. You cannot be in a genuine relationship with God and want something else. It just doesn't work that way. That's That means you don't believe. If you believe that, which is what people who say you can lose your salvation, that's what they believe. If you believe that, then what that means is you do not believe that God has irresistible grace. You believe that the Damascus Road experience that Paul could have just said, you know what, I'm okay. And he would have just continued his life going forward. Or that, the that you know, Peter and Andrew, when Christ said, follow me, they said, eh, nah, we're good. We're good. We, we just got a couple more fish to do and we're probably going to go home and eat. <laughs> Can you imagine? It doesn't work that way. God is irresistible to the ones he's chosen to reveal himself to. He's hidden himself from the reprobate, and we're going to get into that for another question towards the end, but 
he's blinded their eyes so they can't see on purpose because otherwise they would repent and come to him because he is irresistible. So the people who left the church who seemed to be saved at one point, look, your faith isn't based on external things. It's not based on the things you do. It's not based on your identity. It's not based on your rank, on your involvement, on your achievements. It's based on your relationship with God. Is it genuine? This acquaintance friend of mine, his faith was obviously based on the wrong things. It was based on superficial things. He was never saved to begin with because his faith was superficial. So this is where we have to be careful. You know, once saved, always saved doesn't mean you claim to be saved or even that you are involved in your church. It's a condition of the heart. And if God has given you a new heart, that's not going to change. There's ample scriptural precedent for that. Now you could say, well, he bore, he bore fruit. He was a pastor. He was a missionary. He had fruit. Well, yeah, but so did Judas. As we'll soon find out, Judas was given authority to cast out demons, to do all these things. But remember what Christ says in Matthew 7, Lord, Lord. Many will say, Lord, Lord, and I never knew you. So it's what is the point in that passage? That you could lose your salvation? No. The point is that there are many false converts. And that, re, that religiosity, which is what the Pharisees were all about, it's not about the mighty works. It's not about the things you do. It's about your relationship to Christ. And if he knew you, then you have a relationship. You're elect. You're chosen. If he, did, if he never knew you, then you were never saved because he never knew you. He's always alive. He's self-existent prior to time and space. And if he never knew you, that's proof that there was unconditional election and unconditional reprobation. See how that works? Christ can't say, I never knew you, and, and sort of, you were saved at one point, but then, you know, <laughs> then you lost your salvation. It doesn't work that way. Everything with an eternal being works on eternal timelines. That's why you need predestination. So, good people can leave the church, seemingly good people, but they were never saved. And then, you know, their true colors come out, or this is part of their life, and God has a different plan for them. They're going to come back. We don't know. We can pray for them, and, and I do. But ultimately, if they aren't saved, then they were never saved to begin with. Now, question number five is, what about people who died without knowing Jesus? And again, this is, you know, Exodus thirty-three nineteen. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. We don't know who God's going to save. I mean, we, we know based on the gospel, but as far as like in the past and all the people who have ever lived, we just don't know. We know that God is merciful, that he's completely just. We know also that he's intervened in history from the very beginning. And we also know from some examples, like in ancient China, there's a fascinating presentation. It's called God in Ancient China about how the Chinese were a monotheistic people who very much probably believed in the same God as the God of Abraham, which is the real God. All of their ancient writings and, and monograms and, and uh, pictograms relate to the Genesis story, the flood, the Tower of Babel, the Garden of Eden. It's, it's fascinating. And so that is evidence that God was 
not just involved in the Middle East area, but he was involved all over the, the earth. And so the question is, did God save other people that we just don't know about? I think so. I think so. And I think that's very plausible. The God in ancient China is a perfect example of that. I think that God revealed himself to those people and he probably counted them as righteous to those who followed his ways. Very interesting. And the question is, you know, that could be the same for other cultures too, but we just don't know because other cultures are not like the Hebrews where they pass down information very succinctly. Other cultures exaggerate and create mythologies. And so it's it's the telephone game. It gets lost in translation. Whereas with the Bible, it has very good, you know, information preservation because of the way that the Hebrews respected that whole process. So we just don't know. But my guess is, yes, there are people who died without knowing Jesus that were saved. I mean, Abraham didn't know Jesus by name. He knew God and he was counted as righteous. And so was Moses and so was everybody before Christ. And with that same flavor, you could say that people before Christ were probably saved. We don't know for sure, but my guess is yes. And they were counted righteous. Now the question is, after Christ, again, we don't know. We don't know how God chooses to reveal himself. We God shows mercy on who he's going to show mercy. And so it's not up for us to judge, and it's certainly not up for us to presume that he's not saving people, and so therefore... You know, he's unjust. We just don't know. We just don't know. And again, remember the people who he doesn't reveal himself to, there's nothing to pity about those people. They're horrible people because they don't have the spirit. Now, question number six is, do we have free will if there's election? (laughs) Well, I'll refer you to the episode we did a couple weeks ago about free will and predestination, I think it's called. The answer is no, we don't. Not in the, not in the way that we have been trained and, and indoctrinated with this Luciferian, libertarian, enlightenment era thinking. Remember, Christ's life was totally predestined. That's the life we're being conformed to. We do not have this sovereign free will. We have a will. We have an identity. We have feelings, experiences, emotions. Absolutely. Desires, Sure but we don't have the ability to choose free from influence and we're not these autonomous beings that we think we are. Go listen to the episode or watch the episode a couple weeks ago on free will. I mean, there's a ton of stuff in there that I review about, you know, our conditional existence and how no choice that you make is free of influence. In fact, most of the important things that happen aren't even under your conscious control, like your heart, all the things that happen in your body, you're not controlling any of that. So this pompous feeling of I'm in control and I'm me, you know, this this sovereign being, it's not true. It's a lie from the Garden of Eden. A follow-up question would be, will we have free will in eternity? Well, if the cross was predestined, if the kingdom is predestined, eternity is predestined. So the answer is no, we're not going to have free will. Glorified bodies means we're going to be more like Christ, meaning we will be in union with God. Christ was submissive and and subordinate to God. He followed God's will perfectly. And ultimately, you can't have eternity without predestination. You just can't have it. And to me, that's more exciting than 
having this sense of a free-for-all once you get to eternity. I, you know, to imagine that God has created a an, an choreography, an unfolding life for you. Imagine how many experiences you've had in this life, good and bad, that have taught you things, revealed God's glory. Well, that's going to be to the X to the Google level, I don't know, whatever, infinite level in eternity. God has choreographed all of that for you ahead of time. I can't even, I can't even wrap my mind around that. That's profound. And that's something to look forward to, that the perfect being has already predestined something so unique and specific to you as to how to have a relationship with him for eternity. I mean, That gets me excited to reveal that glory, to reveal that plan. Like, come on, I want, what do you have planned for me, Lord? And, you know, that's, that's super exciting. So, yeah, we won't have free will, libertarian free will in eternity because God's not going to stop being God. And we're going to be more and more like Christ. Christ was not, he didn't have free libertarian will as a human being. He does as God. But we aren't gods. We're just human beings that are going to be resurrected and renewed. So we are going to be the perfect images that God indwells. Therefore, no free will. Now, another follow-up to this question, man, there's so much to this, this whole free will thing, I'll tell you, is that we can't be held responsible if things are predestined. And this is, there's a sleight of hand here that happens that's very clever. But first I'm going to go through a couple of verses. Proverbs 3, verse 12. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Deuteronomy 8, verse 5. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So pay attention to these. Revelations 3.19. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. So what's the conclusion? Not only does God discipline us, but he does so because he loves us. This is very important. The words are very important. Okay. When you plant a plant, you predestine the container, you predestine how tall it's going to go, you know, approximately, obviously, because you don't know the full story, but certain things are predestined, and you know how you're going to prune it. You have a plan. Now, God's way of doing that is perfect. He knows everything. And so, ultimately, he's the pruner, right? John 15, 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that I may bear more fruit. Okay. So he's pruning, pruning and pruning and pruning. He is steering us. Okay. Now the pruning refers to this discipline, the discipline that he does to people he loves. He doesn't discipline the the wicked. No, he destroys the wicked. But with the elect, we're disciplined. And that's very important because the Armenian error, the free will error, this is where the sleight of hand happens. Is that when you say we can't be held responsible if, if God predestined things, so how can he hold us responsible? When he's holding you responsible, he's not blaming you. He is teaching you. This is so important. God is not blaming you, he's teaching you. He is using the situation to reveal his glory and his wisdom and to mold you in the direction, to go from one side to another and mold you, mold you, mold you, pruning you like you prune a plant so that it grows in the desired direction. Imagine if that plant, when you cut off one of those things, it took it personally and said, oh, 
how dare you cut off my, how could you hold me responsible for growing that, that twig or, you know, whatever, that branch? I'm not holding you responsible. I'm just pruning you so you grow in the right direction. See how that works? I'm not blaming you. And so blame, where does blame come from? Blame comes from this sense of ego. And that ego comes from free will. I have a sovereign free will. And how can God, you know, blame me if he predestined things? He's not blaming you. God doesn't blame the elect. There's no condemnation for the elect. Remember, we're convicted of righteousness by the Holy Spirit. But he is teaching. He ordained trials in our lives, mistakes, failures, temptations. You know, it's all for our growth. He ordained, he lets, he lets the devil and, and demons, you know, put us through hell. He lets evil people and wicked people, you know, put us through hell so that we could rely on him and so that we could see his glory in redeeming us and saving us and understanding our context of our relationship with him. All these things make our own lives unique, a unique perspective of God. And again, for eternity, we're going to be learning more and more about him in our own way. And that's the beauty of it. But when you see responsibility, being held responsible, being disciplined as teaching and not being blamed, then you're not going to have a problem with predestination. But as long as you hang on to this taking it personally thing with free will, that, oh, he's blaming me even though he predestined it. Well, you got to get out of third grade, man. It's not, nobody's blaming you. God isn't blaming you. He predestined for you to make a mistake so that he could redeem you and so you could understand who God is, that you are nothing without God. And that gets our relationship closer and closer to him. So ultimately, you have to rejoice just like James says in one four, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, testing of your faith. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And the same thing is with 2 Corinthians 12, with Paul and the thorn in his, uh, in his side. That's verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for, the, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The Holy Spirit's power is made perfect in weakness. Suffering has a purpose has a definite purpose. So when you're being disciplined, when you're being challenged, when you're, you're going through trials, it's because God loves you. It's because you are elect and saved and you're being conformed to the image of his son so you could live a perfect life in the way that he intended it to be. He disciplines who he loves. So stop trying to fit predestination into a first-person worldview, Western view, Enlightenment era view. Holding responsible, when you read it, when you think of it that way, is God responding to us. Like he's shaking his finger and saying, see, now I have to punish you, even though I predestined it. That's not God of the Bible. It's, it's, God is not responding to us. And again, all these underlying errors come up, and then you have to do these gymnastics to, to work your way out of it. It has to be viewed from election. Okay, the elect are being shaped for God's glory. We know that. The reprobate are being used to shape the elect and to show God's justice. God is setting and revealing precedence. He's not responding to history. He's disciplining people in, as, as a way to show his plan and, and teach and, and create precedence. Okay, when God rebuked David and he judged David for sleeping with Bathsheba. Did he preordain that? Yes, he did. So how can he judge David for predestining him to have a baby with with Bathsheba? Well, first off, 
God works in multiple purposes. The baby was Solomon, and Solomon built the first temple. And Solomon wrote some books of the Bible, so that had a purpose. And then disciplining David was because he loved him. He could have destroyed him if, if David wasn't elect. God would have just used him for the purpose to create Solomon, and then he would have destroyed him. But instead, he disciplined him because he loved him. And that discipline shows us that God is merciful and that shows God's sense of justice. See how that works? It's all about God in this view. It's not about us. And this is the problem with Arminianism and free will. It constantly takes the the view on mankind instead of God. It really does. Now, Final follow-up to this, this whole being accountable thing, is what about the Bema judgment? The Bema judgment is a final judgment that we have for believers. It's found in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And also Romans 14, 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, or God. So there's, there's a judgment happening for both believers and unbelievers. And the judgment for believers is called the Bema judgment. It's where we're going to get rewarded for the things we did in life and, and be accountable for the things we you know, didn't do or made a mistake on. Not that we're getting you know, thrown in the lake of fire or anything like that, but probably we'll be accountable for that. And so you know, everything's going to be accounted for. And, and so ultimately the question is, if we're being rewarded there and we're told, okay, strive for the narrow door, fight the good fight, all that good stuff, repent, be zealous. How can God, is is God immoral for basically predestining that outcome and not allowing us to strive for better rewards, right? Is he immoral for giving us rewards that he himself predestined? Is he like selfish in some way? And, there's so many responses to this. First off, predestination and participation go hand in hand. They, they aren't mutually exclusive. I can predestine something and I can also participate, right? So God predestined the ending, predestined your life and my life. We're playing it out and the Bema judgment is the conclusion of that. It's saying, okay, you're done. Here's everything for you that I've predestined for you. And you have to trust that that's going to be the best thing ever because God predestined your life differently from other people. Okay, first off, Christ is the reward. Just being there with Christ, that's the reward. You and I don't deserve anything. We're, we're lucky, and not lucky, but we're, we should be grateful that we are chosen and that God has revealed himself to us. Arminianism is, is entitlement because ultimately you think, well, I could have done a better job, basically, right? with my free will. I'm, I'm limited in my ability to sit, to get rewards. Well, it's not what it's about. First off, Christ is a reward. And second off, God made humans in different ranks. They're, they were all created in his image, but you know, you're not like Moses. You didn't do the things that Moses did. You didn't endure the things that Peter did or Paul did. So why should you share in the same rewards? Now we're all going to get rewarded for the things that we've been given, but you have to accept that the place that God has given you is the place that's appropriate for you. And that's, again, it's a humbling thing. There's no, there's no room for free will or sovereign free will or pride or, you know, all this kind of stuff that comes forward. There's just no room for that. You couldn't have done a better job with your free will. So the Bema judgment has nothing, there's no conflict between 
the Bema judgment and predestination. God predestined the choreography for you in this life. At the final judgment, he's making all accounts. He's covering all accounts. The wicked are going to get destroyed. The, the elect, they're going to get rewarded. And they're going to be held accountable for the things that they didn't do. How can he be held accountable if, you know, we're going back to the previous question. How can he be held accountable if, if he predestined it? He's not blaming you. Don't take it personally. God is not blaming you when he's holding you accountable. He's showing you and teaching you so that your eternity is even better. That's the way to see it rightly. Not taking offense to it and say, ah, he's limiting me. It's like, uh, it's like a rebellious child with a parent, right? That's the view of many of these Armenians who argue free will. And it's, it's not based on scripture at all. So Bema judgment is the conclusion of this life and the beginning of the next one. And you get some rewards, you get some teachings. What more could you want? Ultimately, again, Christ is a reward. And anything on top of that is just gravy. Okay, question number seven. If God created us, why are we totally depraved? <laughs> well, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29. See this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So God made man upright. We talked about this in the incarnation. There's human nature versus sin nature. Christ had a human nature. He didn't have a sin nature. Human nature in and of itself was made good. We have self-awareness. We have emotions, sexuality, you know, a physical body. We have all these good things. But if God, we were made in the image, that's the caveat. We have a conditional existence. We're, con, we're contingent upon a relationship with God. If God isn't steering that ship, it will sin and fall away. And this, that's exactly what the Garden of Eden did. It proved that human nature without the spirit will turn into sin nature. And we're all born into that sin nature. The consequences of Adam's choices. So we have sin nature. Christ didn't have sin nature. He had human nature. He was the second Adam, the last Adam. That's why him and Adam had that in common, in the sense that Adam had a human nature before he sinned. He didn't have a sin nature. After he sinned, he had a sin nature, and so did everybody after him. So Christ redeemed that. So we're made as vessels, not as autonomous beings. Remember that. We are pots. God is the potter. And some of us were made for destruction. Some of us were made for glory. And the the spirit inhabiting us, whether that's the case or not, that's what determines whether you're for glory or for, for destruction. The wicked never had the spirit, never will. They're totally depraved. And they remain that way. You and I had the spirit, or you and I were totally depraved. And then God shared his spirit with us and changed our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. That's the way it goes, and we're redeemed. Not because of anything special we did, not because of our faith. Of course, faith, what I mean by that, let me just put a caveat there before I get crucified for it. What I mean by that is not because of faith that you produced on your own. Obviously, salvation is by faith. But faith that was given to you by God. Okay? So it's not something of your own work or your own creation. Faith is not something that we produce. We can't produce it outside of God. And I hopefully I've made that case clear. But in either case, we can be totally depraved and God could have created us good. Both of, the, both of those things are true. He created man. Human nature was good and it is good, but it needs the, the spirit to be 
indwelling in us, just like the incarnation proved. The incarnation was the proof that God's plan works. That was the proof. Garden of Eden was the proof that without God, it doesn't work. I mean, it's brilliant. It, it really is from, from Adam to Jesus. That's the whole message. And it's brilliant. Now, question, question number eight is, how do we explain atheists or non-believers who do good? Well, we explain it with Luke 11, 11 through 13. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So, we know how to do good things instinctively. We have a conscience, we have, you know, instincts. We can do good things. But the good, quote-unquote, of believing in the cross, which is completely contradictory and contrary to anything of our sinful nature, that's not possible instinctively. We don't have an instinct for that. It is completely humbling. As you can see with all this election and predestination stuff, there's no room for free will. There's no room for self, for pride. It is the most humbling thing in the world. There's no credit at all that you can take. And that's why people reject it. They strive so hard against predestination and election because they want room for their pride and for themselves. And it is what it is. There's many people who are deceived by this. But ultimately, Atheists and non-believers can do good because God can use people for the good. God used Balaam, who was a heretic. He was just a diviner, but he used him for the good. God used Nebuchadnezzar for the good. God used many people to achieve good things. Joseph's brothers, they meant it for evil. God meant it for good. So ultimately, how do we explain that? Well, we explain it because God can use people of all kinds to do good. You know, but at the same time, your your good works don't save you. So just because an atheist does good doesn't mean that they're saved. You can have good work without being a Christian, of course. But does that mean you're saved? No, because you've also done countless sins against a just God. And a just God has determined to punish this world at a determined date, which I believe is coming pretty soon. And if you're not ready for that, if you don't have a defense attorney then the only option he's going to judge you against your account and your ledger that he knows better than anybody. So yeah, it doesn't matter that atheists and non-believers can do good. Of course they can. But believing and being saved is a different story. Question number nine is, if I'm elect, why do I still struggle with so much doubt and fear? How do I know if I'm elect? Well, Remember the 12, the 12 examples we talked about in the second episode? People like Moses, the prophets, David, the apostles. So many people experienced doubt and anxiety and fear to the nth degree. Peter denied Christ three times. And somebody who's reprobate would never even ask this question. So the first thing that's important is if you're asking this question to yourself and you're worried, then... The reality is that God is already working in your life because your conscience is, is afflicting you, right? Something is, you, you want to feel more secure. Even though you have eternal security, you want assurance of salvation. And that's really what it's about. Those two things are very different. Assurance, assurance of salvation is our participation in the gift that we've been given. 
Whereas eternal security is from God's view. It is the plan that nobody will be lost that he's predestined to give to Christ. See how that works? Assurance of salvation is from our view. It's things we do like charity, prayer, fellowship, using your gifts. It's all the fruits of the faith. That's what gives you assurance of salvation, that you really feel like, okay, like I am, I'm not pretending, right? Now it's clear that God wants us to participate. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fight the good fight. Be zealous and repent. You know, be prepared for Christ's return. Strive for the narrow door. There's all these, there's all this language in the New Testament of, you know, putting in the work, so to speak, right? But, the, but here's the problem. The people who read these things and think, oh, see, there you go. You can lose your salvation. You got to, it's up to you and your free will. You're reading libertarian, Luciferian, Enlightenment era, whatever Arian you, you want to add to it. You're reading that view into scripture. Those passages are not saying you can lose your salvation. It's up to you to maintain it. Those passages are encouraging you because your salvation is secure and it's encouraging you to take life by the horns because you have nothing to lose. You're not going to lose your life. I mean, you'll lose maybe your earthly life, but you're not going to lose eternal life. So go for it. That's the whole point. Question number 10. What is the point of evangelism if God's already chosen people to be saved? Well, the point is simple. God is doing the work. If it's by free will, just think about, again, think about this clearly. If it's by free will, then you have to have a perfect presentation. You have to sell the gospel. You have to convert as many people as possible because we don't, you know, there's no limit on that, right? It's all based on free will. Do you know how much pressure that is to convert as many people as possible to make sure your presentation is perfect? But that's what it boils down to. But if you believe in predestination, which is what the scripture teaches, then it's it's just proclaiming the gospel as the scripture says. You proclaim the gospel and those who will come will come. We participate in something that's already predestined. Yes, we can participate by proclaiming, but it's predestined. The people who are going to be saved will be saved. When we proclaim the gospel, we're not persuading. Notice that that's the word there is proclaim. Proclaim the gospel. Like you're watering and the seeds will sprout which which need to sprout. You're bringing the, the words of life and those who respond to it will respond. So this is the way to look at it. We are all just gardeners. God is giving the growth. I may say something to you. You know, you'll say to somebody else. Somebody will say to that person. And somehow it all just takes care of itself. And that's, again, the mystery. But we're not, you know, we're not told to persuade people or to forcibly convert them like the Quran, right? It's a whole different approach. Why? Because of predestination. If if you don't believe in predestination, it boils down to the same. This is why these religions are so violent. (laughs) Now, Christianity was violent too, but that wasn't true Christianity. But these other religions that are based on free will, think about it. If there's no predestination, then it's up to you to convert as many people as possible to your cause. It's up to you. You got to do it. And it becomes this virus. Whereas if it's predestination, you're secure in the fact that God will save everybody who he's going to save. And there's nothing, you don't need to worry about the numbers. You worry about the quality, not the quantity. And that is a piece that no other 
perspective has. And again, it's tied completely to predestination. So yeah, what is the point of evangelism? Well, God's chosen people and we get to participate in waking them up. That's the point. Now, question 11 is, what about the scriptures that talk about making choices? One of the best, uh, <laughs> one of the best verses is 2 Samuel 24, 12 through 13. Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in your land or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. This and many others we, we broke down in previous episodes, but does this show free will that we have a choice and that, man, it's all about David's choice and he, you know, he had to choose. It's not. Because if you read the context of this and you read the entire passage, what's happening here is God is giving David three choices. God knows David's heart. He formed him in his mother's womb, just like he wrote. So do you think God didn't predestine the outcome? Of course he did. But why? Again, it's for his glory. God knew that David would say, no, I don't want to be chased by my enemies, but you go ahead and choose between the last two options. So God gave him an option that David knew would reject, which was running from his enemies. He doesn't want to do that. He already did that, plenty of that. So the, the other two choices that were left was three days of famine or three years of pestilence. Or sorry, I think I got that the other way around. Three years of famine, three days of pestilence. Now, one of those choices would have killed a lot of people. The other choice was very merciful for, for the idolatrous sin, presumably. The, I don't think the scripture specifies here, but probably idolatry that Israel was going through. And God was passing judgment on them. So what's happening here? God set up this whole dialogue because he wants us to participate. He's not just like passing things down, even though he's he's completely controlled. He, he wants us to be engaged, and yet he's already predetermined the outcome because he wants us to be part of the, the play, the, the, the outcome that's happening. So he predetermined the outcome by giving David three options. One of them David would reject, and then because David was faithful, he he gave it back to God. He said, you choose what you want to do, Lord. And God knew that. But that was on purpose so that God would reveal his mercy. God would reveal his mercy by picking the three days of pestilence. I think 70,000 people died. But I'll tell you what, if it was three years of famine, there would probably have been, you know, 300,000 people that died. A lot more. And so God used this entire interchange to show, to make a precedent, again, to reveal his glory to future generations and to all the elect, that God is what? Merciful. So these places where they talk about choice, it's not what you think it is. You have to read deeper into these things and think of it from a perspective of God's omniscient, you know, completely in control perspective, which, you know, we can't really do that 100%, but You have to think of it from that perspective. We experience choices, but we don't make them free of influence. That's what God does. Yet, God wants us to participate. The other thing is, all these passages where it seems like God's giving a choice, like with Cain, where where Cain offers his sacrifice and and, it's not accepted and he gets 
upset about it and God says, aren't you going to be accepted if you do the right thing? Is God offering him a choice? And Cain just, man, he just, darn it, he just picked the wrong thing. Is that what's happening there? Or is something different happening? Again, it's the wheat and the tares, the good fish, the bad fish, the, you know, the reprobate, the elect. There's constantly these themes of the chosen and the unchosen. It's, it's throughout scripture that you have two groups of people all the time. It's non-negotiable. You have the people who are wicked and the people who are righteous. Who are the righteous? The people who God has chosen to work through and reveal himself. So when you hear these things like choose life that you may live or follow me, God is not giving people a choice. He's speaking to the elect and prophesying. When, when Jesus spoke to Andrew and, and Peter and all, all the apostles and Simon, he, he said, follow me, and they dropped everything. Okay, just imagine for that. You know, God is physically present in front of you, and, he's, and he gives a command, follow me. Do you think they had any room to reject that command? Well, people who believe in free will say would say yes, that they would have room. If they disagree with that, say, oh, no, they didn't have room. Well, then you can't agree with that and also believe in free will because that's an example that is very clear that we don't have free will. God has irresistible grace, and when he shows that to you, it's irresistible for a reason. So when he says, follow me, he's creating reality. He's prophesying. He's not saying, gosh, I hope you follow me. He's saying, follow me, and they drop everything and follow him. He's making reality. The same thing when he says, choose life. Do you think the reprobate care about his words? No, they don't. They don't care about his words. So what's who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the elect, the remnant. Choose life. He's speaking a prophet. It's prophetic. He's creating a precedent. The people who care about God will live. They will choose life. And they will live. So choices in Scripture are about setting precedence. The whole thing with Cain and Abel, Cain didn't have free will. He was reprobate. That's why he's highlighted in Scripture, because the Spirit of God wasn't guiding him. Abel, which is also a a type of Christ, was the suffering servant. He was killed, you know, for for being righteous. And he was a shepherd, and he, he brought a lamb. I mean, there's a lot of typology there. And Cain killed him, and he was unrepentant, but he was protected, which is also a typology of, you know, how the Jews killed Jesus and they were protected. They weren't wiped out. All the people from 2000 years ago have been wiped out. The Jews, you know, the people like the Pharisees, they're still alive and well today and they still reject God. But ultimately that is, there's more to that story than, oh, see, Cain just made the right choice and Abel made the right one or the wrong choice and the right one. It's not about that. If that's all you get out of that passage, you're not reading deep enough. The Cain and Abel passage and the choose life and the follow me, it's not about free will and choices. It's about God and it's about setting precedents and typologies and showing and demonstrating. You got to think from that perspective if you want to understand predestination. Otherwise, it's not going to click for you because you're wrestling with this free will perspective. So question number 12 is, what about suicide in Judas? And this is what I said we're going to come back to from a previous question. But Judas, if we look at John 6, verse 64, 
But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Who would that be? That's Judas. Now let's look at Matthew 10, the 12 apostles. This is, And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And it names all the apostles. And at the end, who is it? And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, this is very important. Some people will say, you see, this is proof that Judas was, he was doing stuff and he, you know, he was one of the apostles. So he was saved, but then he lost his salvation. He lost faith. Well, wait a minute. There's a verse, very important verse, a little bit earlier. Matthew 7, 21 through 22. I never knew you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So wait a minute. I think we need to read a little more of Scripture because if Matthew 10 says that Christ gave them authority to, to do you know all these things over unclean spirits, cast them out, heal every disease, but then... Earlier than that, Matthew 7, he says, I never knew you to these people who say, we did many mighty works in your name. We cast out demons in your name. So there's got to be something more to the story. And, and that something more is that saving faith does not mean religious activity. It doesn't even mean, uh, I can get my words straight. It doesn't even mean many mighty works and miracles. That doesn't mean you're saved. Look at Balaam in the Old Testament. He prophesied. He was you know, he wasn't saved. He's a pagan. John seventeen twelve. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. Very important. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So, what's going on here? What's going on here with Judas? Was he ever saved? I don't think so. It's very clear that your works... And again, this is people from who are free will minded. They always find these things and, and they justify it by works because there's no other way to justify it if you're from the free will perspective. You see, he did something and he lost his salvation. But that's not the case. Judas was reprobate for a purpose so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. All that the Father gives me, I will keep. Right? That's what Jesus said. And he kept all the apostles except Judas. Judas was never given to him. Do you think that the father gave Judas to him as an elect apostle, but then Jesus, what's, what's he saying, that he lost Judas? What precedent, remember, we're dealing with God here. What precedent would that set for the rest of us if, if Jesus lost one of his sheep? Doesn't make any sense, especially in the context of the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son. That doesn't make any sense. If anything, it's contradictory because God redeems the lost sheep. He doesn't lose sheep. So what the only conclusion is that Judas was never given to Christ. The others were. Judas was allowed to enter the fold and even to do miracles. But obviously there's many false prophets even today that do miracles and various mighty works. And we know from Revelation, the false prophet will come down and call fire from heaven and do all kinds of things. So mighty works do not mean being saved. 
God can use people even, you know, or even allow the devil and evil people to impersonate miracles. So Jesus, or sorry, Judas was never saved. And we know from the gospel that he killed himself and he never repented. So that sealed the deal. He was never saved to begin with. So it is not an example of losing your salvation. Now with suicide, that's a difficult topic, especially if you've had somebody in your life that um, that has committed suicide. And I, I pray that the Lord comforts you in that department. But because I, I know a few and it's it's rough, especially if that someone was your child. That is very rough. But here's my my take on this, and I hope it gives you some consolation. Ultimately, we, we don't have a lot of biblical precedent. We do have a precedent with Saul. He killed himself. He didn't want to be killed by the Philistines. And I believe Saul was saved. I'm going to make a case for that in the next episode when we talk about challenge verses, because a lot of people say that Saul wasn't saved. But again, they go by his works. You see, he did this, he did that, and so he wasn't saved. But it's not about what he did. It's about what God did. God gave him a new heart, and that's plain as day in Scripture. Did he make a lot of mistakes? Absolutely. Was he battling with insecurity? Yes. Did he end up killing himself? Yes. But was he saved? Yes. I believe he was saved, and that gives us hope because it means that people can be elect. You know, ultimately, you can be elect, but you can be battling things like schizophrenia, bipolar, depression, drug addiction. You end up killing yourself. You end up overdosing. I think that's totally possible. And I I think that God would have mercy on those people. Now, those people will have to feel accountable and whatever that's going to look like. I don't know. At the beam of judgment. But they will be accountable for taking their own lives, a gift that God gave them to realize the preciousness of life. But regardless, Romans 839, 838 through 839. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers. Now, remember, death. What kind of death is suicide? It's a death. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing that you can do can separate you from God if you have been saved, truly saved. We don't know how God handles these situations. It's kind of like the unborn, right? I mean, but again, we know God's character. We know that he's just. We know that he does the right thing. And so my consolation to you is if you've had to deal with somebody with suicide, you know, if it's somebody you know, like a family member who's dealing with somebody else in their family or extended family or a friend, pray for them if it's in your own experience somebody close to you that killed themselves, you know, I'll pray for you and ultimately that God gives you wisdom and discernment, but encouragement also because the Bible does have some things to say and the things that I just listed for you with Saul and with Romans, neither death, death can't separate us from, from the love of Christ. And that includes, in my opinion, death that you bring about on your own. And again, there are really tough situations, genuinely difficult situations where people are battling demons and the demons win in that case. But that doesn't mean that God hasn't won already. So you have to remember that and have faith and remember that God does the right thing. Thirteenth question and the last question is about the unforgivable sin. And this is about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So 
first and foremost, this has become such a, <laughs> a source of fear for a lot of Christians, unfortunately. And that's why I wanted to include it in these questions, because the only way to really understand it is from the perspective of election and predestination. Otherwise, you run into nothing but fear and anxiety. But first and foremost, 2 Timothy 1, 6 through 7, very important grounding verse. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Two things here. God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power. How do we have power? Through eternal security. That's how we have power to face the devil. That's how we have power to face persecution. That's how we have power to persevere because God is doing the work. Now, the other part of this is exactly what we've been talking about over and over again, which is on verse 6, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. What do we know the gift of God is from Ephesians? Salvation. Salvation by grace. That's the gift of God. But wait a minute. Paul wants Timothy to fan this, to fan the flame of that gift. So here you see a beautiful picture of eternal security and assurance of salvation. You have eternal security, which is the gift from God. You're not losing that. But there's also kind of a responsibility on our end to to make it grow, to interact with it, to play with it, to fan that flame. You're not going to lose it, but take life by the horns and go for it. You see, both of these things can coexist. I just want you to notice that. There's, there's a very telling, again, another telling scripture about the duality of eternal security, predestination, and then there's the moment-by-moment, live-your-life-day-by-day participation that we have to live as believers, and that's assurance of salvation. Now, this whole context comes from Matthew 12, and it's verses 22 through 32. It's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and read it. It's a couple verses here, a little bit longer, but I want you to first and foremost get the context of this. So we're going to read it and then we'll discuss context. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, or basically Satan, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. It's such a beautiful, you know, Christ came to take back the world from the devil. And the devil is the strong man in this tiny parable. He's plundering his goods, you know, he's plundering the souls that were lost because of the fall. So beautiful. Verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters election and predestination and reprobation. Either you're with him and he knows you or he never knew you. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. (gasps) 
Let's keep reading because this gets really scary. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Wow, that is one of the scariest passages in the New Testament. That and the Lord, Lord one from Matthew 7. Because it makes us think, and and we get insecure thinking, gosh, have I committed this sin? Am I going to show up on that day and and, and Christ is going to shut me out? So first and foremost, I'll say this again. If you're having these thoughts, that means you cannot commit this sin. You will not commit it. And because the reprobate would never think that way. Okay, so if you're worried about committing these sins or worried about Christ telling you, Lord, you know, or shutting you out, that's already an indicator that your conscience is alive. So let's put it that way. But the context, let's talk about context. So, okay, Jesus had been healing people and obviously irresistible grace. People were flocking to him, seeing, you know, is this the son of David? Is this the Messiah? All right, so the people who were uneducated were already asking, is he the Messiah? That's the people who are uneducated. Then you had the Pharisees who studied the Torah day and night, who knew every prophecy and who saw the signs. So they were they were right there. They were in the presence of God. They had authority that God gave them. And what did they do with that authority and knowledge? This is very important. They chose to publicly bear false witness against God. You're literally in God's court in presence and you're bearing false witness against God. Who else did that, by the way? This is why the Pharisees, Christ said that their father is the devil. The fa- their, their father, the devil, was in God's presence. And what did the devil do? Remember, the devil was sinning from the beginning. He was predestined to be the evil villain. But what did the devil do? He bore false witness against God. From the very beginning, he incited angels to rebel by bearing false witness against God, that God is an incapable leader. He bore false witness against God in the Garden of Eden. That was blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Satan was in the presence of God, and yet he rejected God. And this is, we see this throughout Scripture. In in the Israelites, when God just destroyed them, why? when they were in their camp, because they had seen the supernatural nature of God. Okay? They had seen fiery tornadoes. They had seen the ocean being split into two. They had seen all these miracles, and yet they still, like, wantonly rejected God without even a care in the world about it. That's why I said if you're a reprobate, you wouldn't even care about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And this is the point. This sin cannot be committed today in the sense that one way, it can be in a sense and another sense it can't be. So let me be clear on this. Jesus is not walking around doing miracles and, you know, so people can reject him, right? The context of the situation is very, very specific. People were in the presence of God and they had expert knowledge and they used that to bear false witness against him. That kind of situation is not happening and it won't happen again. Because when in time, by the time Christ returns, we're going to be redeemed. We'll have rejuvenated bodies. That's not ever going to happen again. So that's why it can't happen. The context can't happen. However, there are the reprobates still. There are people who aren't saved, and they're committing that sin by default. Because blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a state of the heart. It's a state of character. 
It's not an action that you do. This is where the anxiety is from. And that's why, again, it has to do with predestination. Seeing the gospel rightly gives you the the, the right perspective on this. If you believe it's all up to you and your free will, then you're going to read this and think, gosh, I, I might commit this sin and lose my salvation. And this is, again, where false prophets in droves use this kind of fear tactic to manipulate people to not question their authority, right? Or the church, don't question the authority of the church, the Catholic church, Eastern Orthodox church, all these big churches that are very state churches. And if you question the church, it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So they, they use this. But if you understand what this actually is, there's no fear because, again, God gave us a spirit of power, not of fear. In Numbers 15, verses 30 through 31, God talks about sinning with a high hand. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. Meaning destroyed. So, what does it mean to sin with a high hand? It's one thing to make a mistake, right? I mean, Moses sinned against God countless times, but he's a sinner. But he, one of the, what I'm pointing to is specifically the sin of disobeying God, and that's why he didn't enter the promised land. God asked him to do certain specific things about bringing water from the rock, and he disobeyed God. He did it in his own way. He struck the rock. And then he took credit for it. So God punished him for that. <laughs> You're not entering the promised land, right? Did, did Moses blaspheme the spirit? No, he didn't. He just disobeyed God. But when you sin with a high hand, what does that mean? That's a very specific, it's pointing to a specific type of person. And the person that it's pointing to is the reprobate. The people who are so arrogant that even if God himself were right in front of them doing miracles, And there's proof beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is God, this is the Messiah, that they still sin with a high hand, that they still accuse and bear false witness against God. Those people were never saved to begin with. And so Christ is using this example to show who is really elect and who isn't. Remember the parable that we talked in in the parables of Jesus in the last episode, the parable of the wedding feast, Matthew 22, 14. That's the last verse of it. But it says, For many are called, but few are chosen. This is in a long series of parables where Christ is sort of rebuking the Pharisees throughout many of his parables because they were the ones that acted like they were the chosen elect because they were righteous and they were measuring their works as you know righteous and they're saved and they're, they have favor with God. But their heart wasn't ever with God. So again, they were measuring themselves by their will, by, their, by what they were doing not by the grace of God, not by the relationship with God. And and so <clears throat> Christ is using, back to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Christ is using this to say, listen, these people, they're not going to be forgiven. The, the wicked, they're not forgiven. And that's true, isn't it? The people who God ordained to be wicked and who he'll punish at the end, those people aren't forgiven. They're not. They serve their purpose. The people who... God ordained to be people for Christ, they're forgiven. So you cannot commit the the unforgivable sin. Let's put it that way. 
It's just, it's so much stigma around this. So things that this is not, let's get this straight. It's not having moments where you doubt God. It's not having moments where you're angry at God or you disobey God or where you question your faith despite all the blessings God has given you. It's not having unwanted, horrible, negative, blasphemous thoughts. It's not being, you know, manic depressive. It's not, you know, testing a miracle that you see or a deliverance or a tradition or a person or the authority of the church. It's not testing any of that. It is not being an unbeliever either because you don't know if God is going to work in their life or not. I I told you about the missionary that came to my house and I scoffed at her when she wanted to talk to me about the gospel. Was I blaspheming the Holy Spirit? No. No, because it was a missionary, it was a human being and she came to my house and she wasn't, it wasn't Jesus working miracles and, and me having knowledge about Jesus and then still choosing to blaspheme him. That's not what was happening. A missionary came to my house and, you know, wanted to share the gospel with me. I was lost at the time and I was very much a scoffer, but it served its purpose to bring me to Christ eventually. And for her, I'm sure it made her stronger. So it's none of those things. What blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, it's people who are wicked and who are reprobate. They blaspheme the Holy Spirit because they reject and resist the, the Spirit of God even when He's right in front of them. That's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that's what the fallen angels committed. That's why it's not forgiven. That's why they're in chains and shackles. That's why the devil's going to be destroyed. All these people and their lot they're all going to be destroyed because they blaspheme the Spirit. They resist the Spirit. But God ordained it that way to prove His love for the elect and his, his, our utter need and dependence on God. So it's all part of His plan. And again, all these things you can understand very easily and simply from the view of predestination and election and reprobation. So you can't commit this sin the, the reprobate are aligned with the devil and the fallen angels who committed it, and it only makes sense through predestination. Don't let false prophets and false teachers, don't touch God's anointed <laughs> or church authorities, use this over your head and, and make you feel like, when would you even commit it, right? At what point, what magical phrase would you have to say to lose your salvation? Can you imagine if that would be possible? If you accidentally said that or thought it or whatever? That's what the devil wants you to think because he's committed that sin. He rejects the spirit, even though he was one of the closest to God. But we as elect know better because we have the word of God and we can stand on that. We know God's merciful and we know that he predestines the elect to be saved and that we will not be under condemnation. So take heart, be encouraged. And I hope that at least one of these questions has been useful to you, to your own walk with Christ, to your own faith, to maybe other people in your life, to maybe challenges that you've had. But I hope it's been encouraging. And again, if this is the first episode you're seeing, go back to the others, go check them out. It's a lot of content, (laughs) but ultimately it's a lot of resources for you. Take notes if you need to. One of them, uh, the Trinity one has a, a handout that you can check out. They're all your resources and ultimately, what is the point? My, my goal with all of this was to give you confidence, to help bring you back to the Lord in a strong and emboldened way that we can boldly approach the throne of Christ because we are saved. We have eternal security, but we struggle with assurance of salvation. 
And again, light that fire that the gift of God has been given to you. That's the whole point, right? So hope that's been a blessing to you. Have a great rest of your evening, rest of your week, whatever it happens to be, and we'll see you in the next one.